The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. If you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 16. Our study of the New Testament church began at the end of May last year, and this was the first text that we used in the study of the church. Today we're at the end of our study, and we've come full circle back to this text, where Jesus introduced the concept of the church that would become his body here on the earth. Our series started with a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples when he told them that he would build his church. And the disciples were familiar with the word that he used. He he didn't say church because he didn't speak English. He spoke Aramaic. Uh, Though the New Testament comes to us through the Greek language, the word that he spoke translates to the Greek word ecclesia, which is a word that means assembly. It means a called out assembly, such as what we would think of when we would post a notice for a public meeting, maybe um, a supervisor in Santa Rosa or Rohnert Park. I'm not sure about the structure of the government in Rohnert Park, but suppose that a an official would post a notice and say, we're going to have a meeting because we're going to put a homeless camp in your neighborhood, and we want to see what you think about that. And this would be the same concept. The word simply means calling out, calling out people to gather them together. And so when the disciples heard this word, they weren't thinking of church buildings like we usually think of when we say church. They didn't think of cathedrals or magnificent Gothic structures. But what they heard was that Jesus was going to gather people, that he would bring people together and that he would be with these people as a as a special group that would continue his work when he left this world. And speaking to Peter, in the hearing of all the disciples, he said in Matthew 16, 18, And I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. About eight months ago, our series on the New Testament church began with this verse. It is the promise that Jesus would form an institution, that he would form an assembly, and though it would experience all the forces of hell against it, and though opposition to it would be relentless throughout the centuries, yet it would stay strong, that it would be enduring, and all of Satan's demons would never be able to destroy it. And this promise of Christ rings true because after 2,000 years, we still have New Testament churches that are standing on the doctrines that Jesus taught his disciples. And that's not to say that there aren't counterfeits. It is not to say that the truth has not been distorted. It's not to say that there hasn't been a disturbing mixture of truth and error so that truth is often obscured and much of the time barely recognizable. In nearly every New Testament book, we have a warning about false teachers that would arise and how they would subvert their hearers to steer them away from the truth using lies, deceit, and hypocrisy. And so it's common in the New Testament to read these warnings about apostasy. Jude encouraged his listeners that they must fight for the faith because there were ungodly men who denied Christ who would infiltrate the church. Peter said that false prophets would bring in damnable heresies. Paul said that some like ravening wolves would attempt to devour the flock. John said that many false prophets are gone out into the world. And he warned us to watch for them because he said in them is the spirit of Antichrist. 
And these warnings stayed with God's people in every century that the church has been in existence from the very beginning to the hour in which we live. And the dangers that Jesus spoke of concerning the church and the gates of hell were already upon the church within just days and weeks of his promises that he would build the church. And so this church that Jesus built has known little rest in the past 20 centuries to the extent that there have been times when only a small remnant of believers remained. But there were still believers, and there was still a true church. There's a true church that never apostatized. There's a church that never lost the gospel of Christ. There was a true church that was never corrupted, that never needed to be reformed, and never needed to have a new beginning. The reformers did not restore the church, and neither did they build the church. Jesus Christ built the church, and he promised that it would prevail. Apostates, though, have always been an issue for the church. And let me stop here for just a minute. Last week in our afternoon form class, I was reminded that there are some who don't understand many of the theological words that we use. So you might wonder, what does he mean? What does he mean when he says an apostate? Well, very simply, an apostate is one who is disloyal. An apostate is one who departs from the cause for which he claims to stand. And whenever you find an apostate church throughout the centuries, there will always still be a true church, a church that is identifiable, that has never surrendered the truth of the gospel and never surrendered to the gates of hell. The Lord preserves his church. He said that he would. It's the living, breathing, lively stones that hold up the faith of Jesus Christ so that people in every generation may be saved. Well, my purpose today is not for us to take an historical tour through the centuries to find the true church. It's not to find the church as it contemporaneously existed side by side with false churches. As early as the second century, false churches were identified Before the close of the New Testament canon, we see the apostles, as I said a moment ago, constantly warning about this, warning about perversions of the gospel. There are many who believe that Catholicism was the true church that over the centuries became corrupt. This is not true. Now, it is true that the Roman Catholic Church is corrupt, but it's not true that it's the church that Jesus started. Richard Bennett, a friend of our church and a former Roman Catholic priest, wrote that Catholicism was the original schismatic. Now, Richard is dead now, but he was saved out of Catholicism, and he became a Baptist preacher. And in his study of church history, he affirmed that Catholicism never taught the truth, that it was not the Church of Christ. They were the first organized attempt to corrupt the teachings of Christ. And so he said they were the first schismatics. Now the true church is the church that they tried to destroy with their tortures, with their councils, with their infamous inquisitions in which millions of believers died. The true character of Catholicism is seen today in its massive corruption. Only now is the world beginning to catch on to the blackness of hell that exists in its damp, dark, wretched cathedrals and institutions. News today can travel around the world in seconds, and so the entire world has seen a glimpse of the perversion of Catholicism. Just yesterday in the paper, I noticed that Pope Benedict Benedict XVI, they have now acknowledged helped to cover up uh, the perversions of of the sex scandals and all of this among their priests. This goes on continually. Well, a good church history lesson, that, that would be a good thing for us, and maybe at some point I'll revive the 25 message uh, 
a series that I did on church history. But that's not the purpose today. We're not talking about church history. Instead, I want to reflect on this promise of Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus would build his church and the hatred of hell would never overcome it. This is what we call a promise of perpetuity, a promise of the continuation of the church until Christ comes. And that promise has been sustained over 20 centuries since Jesus spoke in Matthew 16, 18. Its proof is evident because we're sitting here today speaking from the Word of God, speaking of Jesus Christ, speaking of His church, and also speaking of the Gospel. We're here today because the Lord is always faithful to his promises. But I would like to note something that is crucial to our understanding of perpetuity and what we mean about the continuation of the church. What Jesus said in this text is very important. But it's also important what he did not say. Now, we don't really like to make arguments from silence, but this is one that is certainly indicated in other portions of Scripture. Christ promised that he would preserve the church, and this means the church as an institution. He didn't say that he would preserve every individual body of the church. And this is evident because the church at Jerusalem no longer exists. The church at Antioch, which became the center of Paul's missionary endeavors, the church that sent him out and the one to which he reported, he returned to, it no longer exists. And then if we look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that we, we read a, a portion of just a moment ago, this is the Lord's message to the seven churches of Asia, and we see a, a promise in there that if they did not repent and follow Christ and love him and hold on to the doctrines of faith, that he would remove their status as true churches. To the church at Ephesus, he said in the fifth verse of chapter 2, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly. And I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Removing the candlestick, that means taking away the status as a true church that is the light of the gospel of Christ. These seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are representative of churches in all ages. And the Lord's words to these churches are a strong warning that he is the Lord of the church, and he can cease blessing and preserving a church that no longer walks in his ways. So what I want to talk to you about today are ways that we can help preserve our church. How do we keep our candlestick? Well, the power of preservation is the Lord's. But as usual, when the Lord works, he uses means to accomplish his purposes. And his means of preserving the church is through the faithfulness of his people. Through your faithfulness, this church survives. Now, I want you to look at another scripture. This is in Acts chapter 20. If you take your Bibles and, and uh, turn there for just a moment. Acts chapter 20. And we're going to use this scripture as a as a launching pad for our discussion of how we can preserve our church. This passage is the Apostle Paul's last words to the elders of the Ephesian church. Uh, I think it's familiar to most of you. And he wrote this beginning in verse number 25, Acts 20 and verse 25. He says to these leaders, And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, where he would eventually become a prisoner of Rome. This was his last opportunity to meet with the leaders of the Ephesian church, and so he called them and or sent out a call to them to come to Miletus, where he could address them. There he gave them words of encouragement, but also words of warning. And he told them that they must be faithful to preach the gospel. They must stand strong in the faith, and they must be aware that there is great danger to the church. And if they didn't heed his warnings, then the church in Ephesus would cease to exist. Now what I'd like to do is for us to observe these warnings and how they apply to the Berean Baptist Church in 2022. And we need this, folks. We need this because our church is facing unprecedented times. We've not seen the rapid decline that we're currently experiencing. Our time with COVID away from church has turned many hearts cold. So long away without Assembling has got people out of the mood for church, it seems. Wildfires, the economy, politics, deaths, apathy, all of that has contributed, and all of those are tools in Satan's arsenal. So let's gather ourselves a bit and consider what the church means to us. And what it means to this community. Why must we be faithful? First, I'd like you to notice the price of the church. Why must we be faithful? Because of the price of the church. I want you to know why we must be so diligent to protect our church. And I think to get started with this, we must understand the high price, the high value that Christ places upon his church. The purchase price of the church is given in the 28th verse of this text. Acts 20, 28 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, and listen, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Several years ago, my wife and I were remarkably blessed when the Lord enabled us to buy a house in Santa Rosa. Since moving to California, we've not been able to buy a house. We sold our house in Kentucky, but there's so much disparity between uh, from property values from there to here that what we received from the sale was not enough to even begin to think about a down payment on a house here. But then the economic downturn came a few years ago. Prices of houses dropped. And the Lord worked it out that we could buy the house that we were living in. And if you want to hear a nearly miraculous story of how that came about, just ask me because I'd be happy to tell you about it. The Lord worked in just mysterious, wonderful ways that enabled us to buy our house. A house is usually our most valuable possession. We show how much we want a house by paying the exorbitant prices that they ask here. And then we sign our lives away on a 30-year loan to pay for it. And there may be some of you, and I'm sure there are, that you're not able to buy a house because now they're further out of reach than they were when I first came here. But though you don't have a house, you or may not own a house, you still have things that you value. For some, it would be a nice car. Maybe you own a BMW or or a Benz. Or if you should come to your senses, you might save some money and get the very best, which would be a Toyota or a Miata. (laughs) But the point is, there are things that we cherish. A house, a car, jewelry. We invest in these things and we protect them because they're valuable to us. But when the Lord bought the thing that was most precious to him, he didn't write a check. 
He didn't go to Chase Bank or go to the Redwood Credit Union or the Exchange Bank and get a loan. Now, even though the Scriptures say that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the wealth of the world is his, he used none of that because all of it put together was not enough to pay the high cost of redeeming the church of God. The purchase price was simply too high, and it wasn't money. Peter emphasized this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He said, you are, not, you, are, you are not redeemed with corruptible things, not with silver and gold. No, the purchase price of the church was not money. It was Christ's own blood. The purchase price was his life. And by paying such a high price, he set the value of that purchase possession. He, it's not valued. The church of God is not valued by the worth of self, not by the combination of all the selves that are here in this place today. It's not valued by that. It is valued by the worth that Jesus Christ himself put upon it by paying such a high price. Ephesians 5.25 says it was his life. And it tells us that it was worth it to him to preserve and protect his church. He gave his life for his church. And with such a high price paid, there is no doubt that Christ wants us to give all we have and all we are. He wants us to remain faithful to help preserve this body. If Christ was willing to pay so much, then how can we not give everything that he asked to keep this church in Ronard Park? And I want you to know this, and I want you to consider it, just as Paul told the, or asked the Ephesian elders to consider it. He said the very same thing to the church at Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong to God. You are bought with a price. We glorify God by keeping the thing that he entrusted to us. We glorify him by giving our all to keep the church alive. Consider the price when you have other things to do on Sundays that keep you from the fellowship of the church. Consider the price when you use the Lord's money to support your lifestyle. Consider the price when your absence hinders the ability of the church to continue. Far better it would be that you should lose your house, that you would lose your car, that you would lose your jewelry, that you would lose your investments, that you would lose your bank accounts, or even your life. Consider the price when you won't use your talents to help in the ministry of the church. Consider the price when by your bad example you harm the testimony of this body. We are his church. And what we do will either help the church survive or it will destroy it. Well, secondly, I want you to note the potential of the church. Why do we have this church? Why are we spending our lives and giving our money and using our talents for this church? And some of your friends and relatives probably ask that very same question. Why do you do what you do? Why, 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 do you, why do you do this? They don't understand why you do it, what you're doing. And, and I hope that I'm not breaking the trust of one of our members who told me something long ago and, and this stuck with me. I'm not going to mention any names, so hopefully it maintains confidentiality. But this ter- person told me that she was determined that she would give her tithes from what she earned on her job. And the comment that was made by one of her family members was, What? You're doing what? And this amount that you're giving, that's a car payment. Do you see what I'm saying? What makes you give an amount to the church that if you kept it, it would enable you to buy a new car? Why would you do that? Well, it's because of salvation in Christ, because of what he did for us. We understand the value of the Lord's work, and we want to invest in it 
We want to have a part in it. And we want those eternal rewards that are a gift that keeps on giving. The high price that Jesus paid for the church is one reason that we do this. But the other or another is the massive potential of this investment. We love investments that pay off big time, don't we? Oh, I'm sure all of you would love to have bought some stock in Tesla, uh, you know, a, a year or two ago. And then you saw the remarkable rise of that stock and how people just made out. You love those kinds of investments. The church, quite frankly, is a much better investment than all of that. A much, much better investment. What does the church do? Well, I, I've seen many churches that have given up on the gospel, and what they do is spend their time fighting political battles. Some abandon the true work of the church to concentrate on social issues, fighting poverty, fighting for social justice, as they call it, or whatever. Copious amounts of energy are depleted by running around after political candidates or trying to solve voting inequities or micro-researching the pitfalls of vaccinations while practically nothing is done to increase the spiritual well-being of the church. But the truth is, the church has the potential to correct all of these problems, but not by the methods that most churches use. The way to fight crime and to end abortion, the way to see that people are helped to end social injustice is not through the power of government, but through the power of the gospel. Roner Park may not know this, but they need this church. And I think sometimes even our own people don't know how much we need this church. The potential is here to change the community. And, and it's done when lives are recreated in the image of Christ. Probably the greatest compliment paid to the church is right here in the book of Acts. If you want to turn back just a few pages to the 17th chapter, this is the great chapter where we find the namesake of Berean Baptist Church. That's in verses 10 and 11. In the sixth verse, the enemies of Paul and Silas were searching for them, and it says... And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. I, I think that may be the greatest compliment. The world, the whole world order, the way of thinking, all of it was turned upside down by the preaching of the gospel. It is not a bad thing to turn the world upside down because the world is wrong side up. And it needs to be turned upside down to get it back on the right track. And that, friends, is what the gospel does. This is the great value of the coming millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, the word of God tells us that the entire world will be saturated with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what it says in Isaiah 11 verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just read some of those passages in Isaiah to see what it will be like when the Lord Jesus Christ rules the entire earth and his gospel, as I said, saturates the entire world. It is an entirely different world. And it can be here if we give ourselves to the gospel of Christ. It is a different world when people know Christ. The church stands for holiness and righteousness. The church is the instrument of change. And I think that you can appreciate that because of what we know of the history of Baptist. It was the Baptist that gave the world the first taste of religious freedom. And I'm talking about the first taste for them and for others. It was Baptists who insisted that freedom of religion should be a part of the Constitution. Baptists have always believed in soul liberty. And the greatest liberty is to know Christ. John 8:36, Jesus said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. 
So we see how much potential the church has. What the church can do in its potential is to rule politics. You want to solve the problems of political parties? Start with the church. It can change governments. It does it through the gospel. It changes governments, not through political protest. And so we find that when the church slipped, America slipped. When we stopped doing our duty, the social order worsened. And this is the reason that today we're dealing with gay marriage and abortion, with insane legalized pot for your children, with gutter pornography everywhere. That's why we have these problems. The church has so much potential to change things. And then let me hasten to tell you once again that God uses means to change things. And God uses the church to change the world. He has empowered no one else. Governments will not do this. The greatest government in the world will not do this. Parachurch organizations do not do this. It's the work of the church. The church is the only organization given the responsibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the church. So I'm telling you then, if we don't do it, it won't get done. We don't do it, it doesn't get done. And so we have to think about what, what is the Lord telling the churches of Asia? What is, he, what, what, is he, what is he telling them about taking their candlestick and all of that? What, what good is the church? What, what good is this church to the Lord if we don't do his work? Why would he keep us? And the answer is he will not keep us because we're not good for his cause. And there is the reason that churches fade away Christ will not keep alive what is determined to die. And so, if we don't want to keep this church, we just stop doing God's work. Let's change our Bible. Let's get us a different one, or let's just leave it at home, as most people in churches do. You don't even see people carrying a Bible to church anymore. I know that we can fill these seats if we change what we do and do what the world wants us to do. We can bring in entertainment, like most churches do. People love darkness rather than light. You know that? That's what the Word of God says. They love the darkness rather than the light. And there is no darkness that is so great, as great, as a bloodless salvation that has been taught in churches today. The gospel, if it's taught correctly, challenges people. Do you know that? It challenges them. And, and it, it, it challenges them in such a way that they hate it. And so they don't show up for church because they don't like the gospel. If, you, if you're telling people something they love to hear, you haven't got the gospel. They're not going to love to hear it until the Holy Spirit grips the heart and changes them so they'll love what they hear, want what they hear, desire what they hear, and come to Jesus Christ. People love sin, so they stay away. And I have to ask you, what good do we do them if we leave them in the dark? What good does it do them if I get up here and preach you a message about self-esteem? What, if I, what good does it do if I get up here and I'm your life coach today? I'm going to tell you how to exercise your body and get more healthy. What good will it do you? What good does it do anybody if we don't tell them the truth? Amen. Families need the church. Neighborhoods need the church. Do our people believe the church is important? Then I'd have to ask, why is the parking lot nearly empty? Where are those members that are everywhere but here? You know, I'm not going to preach about COVID. I'm so sick of the subject, I don't want to talk about it hardly. But, but I, I will say this. Why is it that people can go everywhere but church? Everywhere but church. And they say, well, you know, the government said you can't do that. You're going to get sick. Did they tell you you're going to get sick if you go to the grocery store? Stay away from the grocery stores. You're going to get sick if you go there. Well, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to talk about that. We have members that are everywhere but here. How do you expect sinners to be impressed with the Lord's work if we aren't? An empty parking lot has much to say to the neighborhood, doesn't it? We look like a dying church, not a thriving one. Church has so much potential to help the world and Christ expects us to.
Doesn't his word say that he loved the world? The church needs to get this message out. And if we don't do that in word and deed, then what use is there of Christ preserving us? Now, thirdly, is the persecution of the church. This past week, my wife and I were discussing preaching the books of the Bible. And she said something to me that I thought was quite amusing. She said, you go through the Bible, and you look for every word that begins with an R, and every word that begins with an F, and every word that begins with a P, and then you preach the sermon. And I think that was her way of commenting on my use of alliteration. Uh, but I will say, that's not how I construct a sermon. I'm not looking for today P's, even though P's are... Or what we're using. Isn't that what we're using today? I can't remember now. Persecution. That starts with a P. The one before it started with the P, didn't it? I don't, I don't run through the Bible looking for all the P's so I can make a sermon. So, am I talking to her? I said, what do you mean? Uh, she said, well, what I think you need to do is you need to preach the books of the Bible. I said, where have you been? <laughs> no, so I, I do preach the books of the Bible. Uh, we've, uh, she was, of course, she's ribbing me is what she's doing. But we, we, we've been through many books of the Bible. And I, I've spent much time in Paul's epistles. We studied Romans on Wednesday nights. I've preached through 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. And most, most of those series are, are from 75 to 150 sermons on, on those books. From our many studies of Paul's life, we're well acquainted with the persecutions he faced. Now, Paul tells the church in verses 29 and 30 of Acts 20, if you're back there again, he tells the church, this is what's going to happen. This is what will happen to you. He says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Isn't it amazing that the church has so much potential for good, and yet it's so hated by the world? There are people that would like nothing better from, than for this church to be gone from this corner. A few years ago, there was an investor who offered to buy this property to build a strip mall. As bad as that would be for the neighborhood, I think there are many people that would prefer it. When people are disturbed by a message that they see outside on our banner, or they heard something in one of the YouTube sermons that we put up, they don't like it, you know that they would love to see us gone. Here's an interesting little factoid for you. About two years ago, there were two lesbians that bought the house behind us. Now, I went over to see them, to see the new neighbors, not knowing the perversion problem. And I offered to help them with anything that they needed. And truthfully, I would help them despite those perversion problems. They need help. They need to know the gospel of Christ. Well, our conversation was going rather well until I told them that I was the pastor of Berean Baptist Church in Roner Park. It turns out they had just moved from Roner Park and they live less than two blocks on Country Club Drive down from the church. And as soon as I said I'm the pastor of the Baptist Church on Country Club Drive, the conversation went stone cold. And now they barely acknowledge I even exist when they see me. Small wonder that would be true. I mean, see how much good that Jesus did for people? Healing people? Changing lives? giving hope where there is no hope, and yet they beat him and crucified him on a cross. The church has enemies. And here, Paul tells us about two types of them. The first is the enemy without. Grievous wolves shall enter among you, not sparing the flock. Why does Paul use the analogy of wolves? One of the characteristics of wolves that makes them so scary is that you don't often see a lone wolf. The wolf is a pack animal. The wolf wants help. 
The wolf wants numbers, so he has an advantage. He wants support. Now, one wolf, I don't want to challenge one wolf. One wolf can do a lot of damage. A pack of wolves is a whole different story. They can do a lot of damage. A wolf also works in the dark. I remember when my grandfather had a farm in northwest Arkansas. There was a small forest on the back side of his property, and there were timber wolves in the forest. At night, we would hear them. We'd hear them howl, and my grandfather uh, knew that there was danger to his cattle because of the wolves. They came out at night, and so the next morning, my grandfather would go out, and he would inspect the herd. And sometimes he would see the damage that was done by wolves. They attacked the calves. They attacked the ones that were weak and couldn't put up much of a defense. Now, what Paul does is to compare the enemies of the cross, the enemies of the church, to a pack of wolves. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He said, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Beware of dogs. I don't like dogs. Four-legged dogs. Don't like them very much. Um, but that's not what he's talking about here. Not those kinds of dogs. This, was, this is an interesting way of putting it. Because in the scriptures, especially in the ministry of Jesus, dogs most often referred to Gentiles. But Paul uses the word here about Jews that were trying to turn Gentiles away from the faith back to the old system of circumcision. And, and it gives you an idea of how God sees those that are enemies of the church. They are dogs. They're wolves. Peter added gracefully, they're brute beasts. You can keep that in the back of your mind when you hear preachers tell people, hey, you are so awesome. You are so awesome. If they just think positively, they can prove how awesome they are. And so the preacher feeds that inner beast that thinks, I don't really need Christ. I'm, all, I'm awesome. Preacher just said, I'm awesome. I don't, I don't need Christ. I'm good enough the way that I am. You know, when I hear a preacher use the word awesome, I just turn that off. I don't want to hear that. They're dogs. They're wolves. They're brute beasts, the Word of God says. They're out there and they're everywhere. So Jesus says in Matthew seven fifteen, and he's graceful as well, isn't he? Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? Ravening wolves. Now what is he talking about there? Wolves in sheep's clothing does not mean that a wolf dresses like a sheep. This refers to the shepherd. The shepherd wore the clothing made from the wool of a sheep. And so this wolf is one that pretends to be the shepherd. And that's what false teachers do. They pretend to be the shepherds who are helping the sheep. And today, the airwaves are full of these false shepherds. There are packs of them on TBN. I think a name... Name change for that network would be good and appropriate. It should be WBN, the Wolf Broadcasting Network. That's the network of Joyce Meyer, of T.D. Jakes, of Joel Osteen, of Kenneth Copeland, and folks, a pack of many others. It's a place for wolves to prey on the spiritually weak. Now, if we are to preserve the church, we must keep the wolves out. Turn that stuff off. Don't listen to that. Don't buy their books. Their books are the best-selling things on the Christian market, if you want to call it Christian. Sometimes even you'll see a Baptist on TBN. And I say this, a Baptist on TBN has to be a wolf. You can mark that Baptist off your list because to survive in that place, you must compromise the gospel not to bite the hand that feeds you. There is an enemy without They come from the religious world, and they come from the non-religious world. But the religious ones are the worst. They're the worst because people expect something better. Satan has many wiles, he has many tactics, he comes at us from all sides. And to show you that this is true, 
Paul gives us another category of them. They're also, he says, enemies among us. That's the enemy within. Verse 30 says, Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw disciples away from them, away after them. The worst enemy and the greatest grief to a pastor is the enemy within. It's the church member that wants to factionalize. It's the church member who opposes the pulpit, one who undermines the teaching of the pastor. The worst enemy is one that ruins the harmony of the church. Proverbs says that there are seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. I strongly suspect there are many, many more than seven. But interestingly, the seven mentioned must be especially bad because the Lord gives them space in Proverbs chapter 6. Number seven on that list is, He that sows discord among the brethren. Can you imagine how bad that is for the church? The church that Christ paid his blood to ransom. He gave his life to redeem us. He loved the church more than the riches of heaven because he left there to come to us. He died to bring us to the unity of the faith. And so how bad is it to factionalize and cut a unified body into pieces by sowing discord? How evil is it for someone under the guise of friendship, of love and companionship to tear down what we have tried so hard to build? That sounds like Judas, doesn't it? Paul said, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This is what you call spiritual cannibalism. You bite and devour one another. He said to the church at Corinth, when I come, I don't want to find any divisions among you. Jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's not possible. This is what will destroy the church. Division destroys the church, and we're trying to preserve it. Thank the Lord. I, really, I'm, I'm preaching to a crowd that there, I know that after the service is over, you're not going to be fighting in the parking lot. You're not going to be at each other. Probably not. But this is, you know, warning for future times, perhaps. This is the reason factions and disunity are the reasons that Paul said that we are to love our brothers and to forgive them. Colossians chapter 3, he says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And you might just look at the whole context of Colossians to really get the impact of what he's saying here, why this is so important. Colossians is where we find these great unparalleled statements such as, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It says he is the image of the invisible God. You better watch out what you do with this church. It's the body that he is sworn to preserve. So when Paul speaks of kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forbearing and forgiving, all that's about stopping divisions before they get started. Don't let it get a foothold. And you do that by shutting down those natural desires to get even and come out on top. You don't need to be on top. Jesus said, you've got to be on the bottom. You, you must be a servant of others. So how do we protect our church? We consider others better than ourselves. He says that. Forgive one another. Love each other. When a gossip comes to you, you stop it right there. You just head it off. I, you don't want to hear that. A person can't sow discord if others don't let him. And so when someone comes and they want to speak against me, for sure, stop it there. Don't let that happen. Just tell that person, don't speak against the under-shepherd. Tell them... I will pray for you that God will take away your bitter, divisive spirit. Whoa. 
Would you say that to somebody who came to you with gossip? I'm going to pray for you that God will take away that bitter, divisive spirit. How long do you think they're going to stick with you? How long or how many, what are they going to do if people are always giving that answer back to them? They're not going to stay around very long. We want to be church members that hold the church together rather than tear it apart. Now just one more point for you to remember about preserving the church. Number four is the power of the church. The best news in all of this is that the church has the power to keep from being defeated. We don't really need to just lie down in front of Satan and let him run over us. And the one that we fight, that's always Satan. He's always behind every attempt to destroy the church. Satan's very powerful, that's true. It is very true. But more powerful is the Lord who is with us. More powerful is the Holy Spirit who is in every believer in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about preservation of the church, we've got to be on the right track doing the right things. I, th- I think one of the most impressive statistics for the longevity of a church is the amount of time that the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London has existed. This was Spurgeon's church. In the middle to the late 19th century, this was his church. Spurgeon was there for decades, although he wasn't the first pastor. The church started in 1650 at a time when Baptists were banned from holding open meetings. They must have had a serious case of COVID then. But they were banned from having open meetings. In 1650, 372 years ago, that church was started. After nearly four centuries, the church is still going strong, preaching the same doctrine that it had at the beginning. It was begun with Baptist doctrine. Today, Dr. Peter Masters is the pastor who still preaches the doctrines of grace. They haven't become a liberal church. They are stalwarts for the faith. I receive materials from them, and one of the ones that's my favorite is a magazine that Spurgeon started, The Sword and the Trowel. How did that church survive? Well, give the glory to God first, of course. But go back and you read about the pastors of that church down through four centuries. You read what they believed and taught. In that group, you find... Benjamin Keach. He was around for the first London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1644. John Gill is in that. 51 years he pastored that church. And he is perhaps the greatest theologian besides the Apostle Paul that Baptists have produced. Charles Spurgeon, of course, is in that group. Uh, He was the most eloquent and prolific of all preachers so that he's called the prince of preachers. And do you know what each of these men had in common with Dr. Peter Masters today? Undying devotion to the word of God. Folks, no matter what we do, if we don't stick to the word and preach the word and uphold the word, this church will not survive. But if we do preach the word, all other Christian graces follow. Obedience, compassion, kindness, all of this flows through the Word of God. So I would tell you that a pastor who stands before you and barely, if at all, opens the Bible to preach a message from the Word of God, if he will not do that, all he's doing is just painting over people's problems. Making you feel good, but not giving you the thing that will change your soul and change your heart and change what you are. Because the only thing that does that is the Word of God. You can't leave out the Word of God. It's impossible. And and serve God and glorify Him. We must have God's Word. So, how do we turn the world upside down? We stick to the Word of God. Are we sticklers for doctrine in this church? Yes, we are. We are. We are. Do we refuse to compromise? Yes, we refuse. Will we go along to get along? No. 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 Most people don't like us because, no, we don't go along to get along. 
Do we bring our Bibles to church here? Yes, I encourage that. I encourage it. Do we stand on our Baptist statement of faith? And when I say Baptist statement of faith, we firmly believe that it's not the Baptist per se statement of faith, it's the Bible's statement of faith. Do we stand on that? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We do all of this. And why? Because it preserves the church. Because it brings glory to God. The power of the church is still with us. The ability to defeat Satan is still ours. Again, Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Our offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And to the degree that we abandon the Word is the degree of the degradation of the Lord's church. We don't want to be a fading church. We do not want to be a dying church. We want to be alive for Jesus Christ and standing for the truth until He comes again. Jude said, Beloved, when I give all diligence, gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Well, let me close with this. How quickly can all of this change? How quickly? In 1994... My father stepped down as pastor of our church in Kentucky because of his health. He was the pastor of the church for 29 years. 29 years he was faithful. For 29 years the gospel was preached. We had a large church and so there were thousands of people that passed through the doors of our church hearing the truth of God's word. I learned from him. And if you don't like what I preach, blame him. Blame the Lord's what I should say, because we're preaching what the Lord says. When he stepped down, the church chose a new pastor, and to make a long story short, he wasn't faithful to the word. In fact, it turns out to be a very short story, because so was the survival of the church. He said, when we interviewed him and brought him in to be a pastor, he said, I'm going to teach the same doctrines that you have taught in this church. Same things. But he lied. He abandoned Bible doctrine. In less than 10 years, the church was dead. We had a beautiful building on seven acres of prime land. On the east side of us and on the north or south side, rather, uh, we were surrounded by beautiful bluegrass, thoroughbred horse farms. But the church died, and then the building was sold. First, there was a group of charismatics that brought, bought the building. Then they sold it, and now there's a group in, in there that doesn't claim to be Christian at all. So the church disappeared. It disbanded. A great church died because it stopped preaching the word. And that can happen here. We must preserve this church. When I'm gone, get a pastor who preaches the church. I hope that I've told you enough about what you should look for that you know that you're very careful about who you choose I'm not particularly interested in the legacy that I leave the church except for this and that is that I can rest in one thing that I taught you the truth that's really all that I care about it really doesn't matter a whole lot whether you think I'm a great man and someday when I die that there's a huge funeral with thousands of people that attend I don't have that many family members, so I know that we're not going to have that many people in church when I die. I, I want you to know that I warned you about what could happen to the church. And I want you to listen to that warning. The faithfulness of God's people is the means of God preserving this church. It's the only means that he has to preserve it as he wants the church to be when he comes again. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Heavenly Father, we ask today that these words will ring in our ears and in our hearts. You have a church 
that you have built, a church that you expect to preach your word, a church that you expect will work for you so that you would never have to warn us to repent. You would not warn us that we will lose the candlestick. That is that, that gospel that's entrusted to us. The right to be called one of your churches. Well, we just pray that that will never be gone from us. We will serve you and serve you and serve you till the day that we die. I ask, Lord, you impress upon all the membership of our church. There are many that are not here today that will not hear this sermon. I pray that we could pass it along, and I pray that those that are here today remember it and and use it to encourage others that aren't here. Help us, Lord. Bless us as we work for you in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.